Let's stop delegating out our confidence to other people's opinions, what other people will think. When you start to own those things about yourself and you start to get truthful that maybe you need to make some different changes, people will be upset with you. People who maybe took advantage of your generosity, people who just were benefiting from you showing up and hustling and doing all the things. And so when you start to make those changes, like I have career changes, relationship changes, people will get mad. And I think I used to just try to make everybody happy, you know, don't be mad at me. But um, a coach gave me this card once and I keep it by my desk and it just says, let them be mad. What's good? What's good, party people? Welcome to Candid Conversations. I am your host, Candia Johnson, a woman on a mission to help you show up and speak up anyway, despite dealing with fear, uncertainty, or self-doubt. Today's guest is Kelly Thompson. Kelly is a fellow women's leadership coach, speaker, and author of Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. Kelly helps women advance, to the rooms where decisions are made. She has coached and trained hundreds of women to trust themselves, lead with more confidence, and create a career they love. She's also the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program, and she's a Stevie Award winner for Women in Business Coach of the Year. What I enjoyed most about our conversation today is that while Kelly is blazing trails, in the leadership confidence space. I loved how transparent she was and talking about how her confidence levels fluctuate daily in ways that she manages to push past those feelings of not being good enough, not ready to get started, a fear of being judged by others. And she pushes past these feelings to show up and speak up anyway while she's pouring into others to be more confident in their lives. We also talked about the power of increasing your self-awareness to boost your self-confidence by knowing your Enneagram type. Now, your Enneagram is a personality assessment which describes people in terms of nine types. So each type has its own fears, motivations, and internal workings. And for me, this assessment can really help you become even more aware and clear about the ways in which you self-sabotage yourselves and why you do it. And when you have a better understanding of your internal dynamics and why you do the things that you do, it can help you plan better, make better decisions, even healthier decisions, and focus your energy on what you are really great at. Now, notice I said what you're great at, not what you're good at, (laughs) which ultimately helps you become not only more confident in your career, but also confident in your personal life as well. So listen and let me know what you think. We have two like-minded souls in the virtual building, okay? Welcome, Miss Kelly Thompson to the Candid Conversations podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today. We are talking about confidence today, and we're both drawn to, to this topic. And so the very first thing that I have to ask you, Kelly, is on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you today? Today, I would say I may be about a seven. Feeling pretty good today. I just actually came back from vacation, which is probably a little counterintuitive, but I always feel a little more confident when I, after I've had a break. <laughs> Isn't that, cr- that's so funny. Yeah. You know, me too. It, I always feel a lot more confident. Now, when is the last time you believe you were at a, so you're at a seven today. When is the last time do you believe you were at a three or a four? Three. 
Um, probably it wasn't long ago. I'm actually trying to think of, well, there's been many circumstances. I'd say it was probably right before I left for vacation. So it'd have been about two weeks ago. I'm in the process of writing and editing my book. And I had just gotten some of the edits back from my publisher. And I remember like flipping through them. And of course, when you edit a book, you read it like 10 times. And so like now I'm at the 10th time. And all I can hear now when I read this book in my head is like, and I don't think authors talk about that a lot, that after you read your stuff over and over again, at least for me, like I just start to get really critical. I'm like, no one's going to want to read this. This is just junk. And it's just the inner critic just doing its job, doing its thing. And so, yeah, that was the last time I was probably at a three. So listen, party people, this is what I love about this conversation, because you have a woman who has dedicated her life to teaching women how to be more clear and confident and who you are, what you stand for and making me ask for more money, all the things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I likewise am committed to the same thing. And we're laughing and talking about those times when we were fully confident. And then recent times when you just have a moment and you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Is, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I really cut out for this? What Who do I want to be? What I hear me? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So it's so funny. Thank you for being transparent and vulnerable and sharing your story about that. Because I believe when it comes to confidence, the biggest misconception that we have is that you, you feel confident all the time. Yeah, no, I would say it fluctuates at the day. Now, later today, let's just, since we're being transparent, I have to make a big ask for my book that I've been procrastinating on for probably two months now. It's, I, I, there's somebody that I want to endorse it. I want, I want to write Adam Grant and Dan Pink and Susan David to endorse my book, right? Because all authors want that. And so I've been procrastinating because of imposter syndrome, right? Oh, what do they say? No, I mean, basically like not doing the things that I preach to everyone else. So I told you my confidence is seven right now because I've got the vacation glow. But if you and I were going to be talking in about four hours, I would tell you that my confidence level was probably at a two, just enough to write the email, but not enough to send it. So just know that it can fluctuate during the day and you are still normal because. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, I am speaking all those people into existence who are yes. going to write you an awesome. And I love anything Adam Grant. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now listen, if you all are not following Adam Grant, Kelly Thompson and me, don't get it twisted. Yeah, uh, you are doing yourself a disservice. So let's just get right into it then. So tell us about the book. Let's start there. Who's the book for and why'd you write it? Okay. So the book is called Closing the Confidence Gap. Boost your peace, your potential, and your paycheck. So I swore up and down. I was in my boss's office one day, and this was probably 10, 12 years ago. And we're just chit chatting about our dreams. And I just said, you know, I would always, for my whole life, I wanted to write a book, but I just didn't know what it would be about. And I told her, I said, I just, I've always wanted to write a book. I don't know what it'd be about. But I said, but what I do know is I will never, ever, ever, ever write a leadership book ever. Because at the time, let's walk back 12 years, I'm comparing myself to most leadership books in the market, which were written by white men. We're talking Jack Welch, we're talking Stephen Covey, we're talking Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great. And so I'm comparing myself. I just can't see myself in that space, right? And I think we're still up underrepresented in terms of leadership books written by women and people of color. And so I just, I like, no, I, I just would never do that. I don't want to be in that market. So here we are, fast forward 12 years later. I was a leader in corporate America. I mostly worked in male dominated spaces. I grew up in investments in tech and in banking. 
And when I left corporate America, I actually came into contact with these business mastermind groups that taught you how to run your business. But then they also had like this, this training component to it that talked about building confidence and speaking up and what it's like to be the only woman in the room. And it was a field with all women. And like, there was so much safety there. Like people were bringing their babies, they're breastfeeding on zoom calls. Like we're talking about menopause. We're talking about women's issues. And it was so safe to show up and be yourself. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I needed in corporate America. Like I needed a space as a woman to talk about the things in leadership development that we didn't talk about. Cause I used to create leadership development programs and they were all about strategy and how to give feedback and all of that. But I was like, nobody taught me about how to show up as myself, how to combat like gender likability biases, how to address the gender pay gap. They didn't teach me about how there's a confidence gap in between men and women, even though maybe women perform a little better, according to research, they have left less confidence than men. Nobody was talking about this. And so I just got mad and I thought, well, I'm going to use my expertise to create a training program for women, a leadership development program that they can take so that way they can go back to the workplace and lead the way they are meant to lead as who they are fully trusting themselves and taking their bravest next steps. And so that eventually turned into the book, Closing the Confidence Gap, because I wanted more women to have access to this, like for as little as a $12.99 ebook, right? Like I wanted more women to have access to this level of insight so they can go back into the workplace and know how to show up as their true selves, use their talents, trust themselves, speak up, ask for what they need. And ultimately, I believe that we need to change workplaces. We need more women in the rooms where decisions are made. And the only way we're going to get that is by changing one woman at a time. So that's my goal with this book is like maybe one woman with this book in her hands, one person at a time can start to change the way the workplace just acts and shape and, and makes impact in our communities too. So I love that mission because it makes me think of this quote by Mother Teresa. And it says, if you can't feed a hundred, then just feed one. Mm, yes. Right. Because sometimes I know, especially with confidence, and even with the women and men that I sometimes encounter who have confidence issues, it's this big push to want to inspire the world or speak to the world. Just speak to that one person. Baby steps count too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I love that that's your focus. Ideally, if you had to think about the one thing that you would want someone to take away from, what would it be? Mm. Trust yourself. Mm. You know, there's just so many, we work in a patriarchal environment. You know, the workplaces were created by men, for men, white men, no fault of their own. That's just the way the world was. And so there's just lots of expectations and norms, um, lots of well-meaning advice on how you think you should show up. And you know what, at the end of the day, like you just trust yourself, trust yourself that you know, what is yours to say, yours to do, what your unique talents are and, and use that in the world. Cause somebody's counting on it, right? Somebody is counting on only what you have to offer. Right. I like that. I, I always say, you know, there are certain uh, things that we are always told to do, but no one really teaches us how to do them. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've always heard, you just have to believe in yourself. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good, but how do I do, what's the first step I need to take? And I feel that way. I, I totally agree with, you definitely have to trust yourself, but what are some of the small things that we can do to build trust in ourselves? So good. Such a good question. You know, one of the things that the way I start the book is really by knowing what your core values are. 
I think a lot of the bad decisions I made in my life, and again, I'll just be totally transparent. I was married at a young age and that ended in divorce, rushed into another relationship, ended up calling off that wedding. And through all those years, I was a box checker. I think, you know, high achievers are right. I learned from my family of what would be successful, make me happy in the world. And I checked all those boxes, but I never stopped to ask myself, do I want any of these things? And so when I think about trusting myself, it really starts with knowing what your core values are like, and does this job, does this work? Do the people I have in my life even align with these core values? Because that's kind of like the foundation on which you can start giving your best yeses and nos. I give a yes when it's in alignment with my core values and I give a no when it's not in alignment. And I can start to learn to trust myself by knowing what's in alignment with my values. I think that that is the most foundational place to right. start. And for some women to say, well, I don't even know what my core values are. Even smaller step than that. If I asked you, okay, well, what do you know that you don't want? I, everybody can give me a list. Oh, I know what I don't want. Okay, start there. Make a list of everything you don't want and then do everything that isn't that. Right. I, I uh, agree because when I think back to, I guess probably for me within the last three years, I've been very focused on these are my core values. And if it violates one of those things, the, the answer is an absolutely no. Mm-hmm. And to your point, it has been through some of the toughest or challenging times in my life that I identified a core value. And even for me, I remember working in corporate America. So I was leading a team and the company, of course, paid for us to have an apartment or a hotel. And the request was that we now had to have a roommate, someone on my team. And I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) And I took a trip to South Africa and I decided on my safari trip that I quit. You can tell me when to eat lunch. You can't tell me how to live. And that became a core value for me that working after the typical working hours is an absolute no. So I like that you said, what, what is it that you don't want? That is a place where you start to cultivate your core values. And then shout out to you. Cause I heard you say you called the wedding off. That's confidence, yeah. courage and everything. Oh, it didn't feel like it at the time. It felt like a crap ton of vulnerability and messiness and confusion and absolute and total failure. <laughs> But there was a dose of courage in there too, but thank you. And I mean, you know, it, it might've been easy to just breeze over it, but yeah, that's a big life impact calling off weddings, sometimes quitting jobs that you've been in for 12 years. Cause you know, that becomes part of your identity. So thank you. Especially because society says that that's what success is. So we have to start celebrating uh, ourselves for those moments. Although to your point, it doesn't feel like that. Not in the moment. Looking back, I could be like, ooh, that was a dose of confidence. But in the moment, it just felt like crap. (laughs) Right, right. Well, you know what's also funny about it? Because I've learned that increasing your self-awareness, I like to say that's the good, bad, and ugly of who you are and how you show up in certain situations, also allows you to be more confident. And I want to talk about that because I know you specialize in Enneagram types Mm -hmm. and that gives you a level of, oh, so this is how I am and this is how other people are and it's nothing wrong with that. So tell us about the power of identifying your Enneagram type and how that leads you to being or feeling more confident. Absolutely. So let's just start this off by saying that I've never met a personality test I did not like. Done them all. The DISC, the, the Myers-Briggs, I was certified in Myers-Briggs, I still am, and use that a lot in corporate because it, you're right, it gives us so much self-awareness into like how we show up in the world and how others perceive us. And then I came across the Enneagram. 
And the Enneagram is different. It sounds like a funny word. What is this weird thing? Ennea is just the Greek root the Greek root of the word nine and gram, we know Instagram is something that's just written down or drawn. It literally means a nine pointed diagram, which if you see the Enneagram diagram, it's like a circle and it has one through nine all the way around it. So that's what the word Enneagram means. I just want to get level set there, but it's different because of like the Myers-Briggs and the disc and all that tells us what we do. The Enneagram tells you why you do it. And so it's a model of nine basic motivations. It basically says that there, you are one of nine types and whatever type you are is identified by what motivates you or what's your basic desire. And it also tells you what is like the core fear. Our personalities are built around avoiding this core fear. And so when you talk about self-awareness, the Enneagram was so powerful to me because I learned I was an Enneagram five and I'm happy to walk through all nine types if that's something you'd like me to do. But I found out I was an Enneagram five and I was motivated by the need to be capable and competent and to conserve my energy. And I was like, oh, this explains so much. This explains why I was so perfectionistic and why I had to do all this research and stall before I would actually take action. It taught me that my core fear was like being incapable, being incompetent, looking foolish, running out of energy. And I'm like, oh, that's why I overmanage my calendar. That's why I overmanage my resources and say no to so many things. And I don't like it when people are placing demands on my time. Like the ahas that my clients have about what motivates them and how sometimes the bad habits that keep getting in their way are related to, I mean, they, they see that when they learn their Enneagram type and they're like, this explains my whole life. <laughs> this explains all my good decisions, my bad decisions. And so when you know why you do the things you do, then you can actually make real changes. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy. Do you want me to unpack all nine types? Yeah, let's, let's, let's unpack that because even for me, so I, I, I did a bit of research. Of course, I was lovingly stalking the information that you have on your site and some of the things that you've done. And I, I've learned through self-awareness and taking tests like that. So I am a fan of DISC. Now, thanks to you, I'm a fan of the Enneagram, right? But it, it helps you feel like you're not alone too. You just know that, okay, this is who I am, but there are other folks out there who have these same insecurities or fears. Mm-hmm. And now it's about how can I use that information to serve me versus harm me? And, yes. stay, you know, and, and shrinking yourself. So let's just run through the nine types and what they are. Yeah, let's talk about that. So Enneagram ones, they are motivated by the need. They have a basic desire to be good, to have integrity, okay? To be right and perfect and avoid mistakes. So that's what their personality is fearful of is they don't want to be defective. They don't want to make any mistakes. They're always looking for the right thing to do. Enneagram twos are motivated by the need to feel loved and appreciated. They love to be needed. And so they want to avoid feeling useless. Okay. So for them to not be needed, the fear of not being needed will drive them to overhelp. Enneagram threes, they are motivated by the need to feel valuable and worthwhile and to be the best. Okay. U.S. corporate culture is an Enneagram three culture. It's it's success, achievement, all the things. A lot of people think they're threes because that's the culture that they're working in. And so what they're fearful of is failure. The kind of the question that like goes to their mind is who am I? Am I anything without all of my accomplishments? Enneagram fours are motivated by the need to be unique, to have a unique and significant identity in the world, to be original. And they want to avoid their core fear would be being original or boring or without having like a unique identity. 
Pentagram fives, I talked about this, are motivated by the need to be competent and capable. They love to have knowledge and conserve their energy. Um, what they want to avoid in the world, though, is being depleted of that energy or looking foolish, um, coming into a situation where they are totally unprepared or not competent. Enneagram sixes are motivated by the need to feel safe and secure. So they love to have rules or people or something around them that makes them feel safe and secure. And so what they're always trying to avoid is to being in, in a world or an environment that doesn't feel secure for them. That feels like there's a lot of exposure or a lot of risk. Enneagram sevens are motivated by the need to feel satisfied and experience all the possibilities that the world has for them. They're like the FOMO kings and queens of the world, right? Like I want to do and experience all the things. And so what they're always trying to avoid is honestly boredom. Like they don't want to feel limited or restricted or bored. They always want to have all the possibilities. Um, Enneagram eights are motivated by the need to feel strong and in control to protect themselves, stay in control. Not control other people, but remain in control of their own choices and destiny. So they're trying to avoid vulnerability at all costs and anything that could expose their weaknesses or vulnerability. And then our Enneagram nines are motivated by the need to be in harmony with the world, like have peace of mind and inner stability. And what they're always trying to avoid is conflict or chaos. Mm. They can read conflict. They've got conflict antennas, like they can spot it a mile away and will negotiate around it. So that's kind of an overview of the nine types. I'm curious, which one resonated with you? See, now you have my mind <laughs> all over the place. Cause I'm like, okay, wait, it, it depends on the week. I could be any one of those people, but uh -huh. I do feel like my spirit resonated more with the corporate one at times and ambitious. Yeah. And then the last one, but then I don't know, because then I felt exposed when you talked about just wanting to be in control, which brings up a question though. Do you believe that based on the season of a person's life, they could change their type or is That's it kind of question. constant? There, our type actually doesn't change. It's some people think you can, you're kind of born your type. Other people say we develop and become this type because of the way our personalities adapt when we're little people, right? When we're little people and we need to get our needs met, we start to create different personality patterns based on our families that we're in, et cetera, situations that we're in um, that serve us when we're little. And so sometimes people say, oh, I feel like I, I shift a little bit. Well, the cool thing about the Enneagram that makes it a little bit different from other personality assessments is that it actually gives you a path for growth. Like with DISC or Myers-Briggs, it's like, hey, you're a D, good luck. Don't be so direct or whatever that looks like. But with the Enneagram, it actually says, you know what? This is the box that you've been in your whole life, but here's the good news. There's a way out of it. Mm -hmm. So each type has what they call a growth number and a stress number. And so you said that maybe three resonated with you. Well, a fun fact is that when threes are stressed out, they look a little bit like nines. They actually get a little bit lethargic, don't want a lot of conflict or chaos, um, threes at their, at their healthiest selves, or it looked like Enneagram sixes. You said that the one that made you feel the most exposed was Enneagram eight. Mm -hmm. My hunch is that I would do a little homework there because one of the things about the Enneagram is that when you first find your type, it usually isn't a warm, fuzzy experience. It's not like Gallup, right? Where you get your Gallup strengths and you're like, oh, this is so great. Like when you find your Enneagram type, it's like, oh my God who got in my journal? This is terrible. Like I remember learning I was a five and I was like in a shame bath for three days. I'm like, who knows about this? Cause it was like, I kind of wanted to be a one. I thought I was a one for a long time. Cause I think I wanted to be that number, but no, I'm a five. Right. I'm a five. 
it, it's so funny different. with these assessments. I love mm-hmm. them because it does provide insight. But it's so funny when you learn about the types. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, oh, I want to, that's my type. That's my type. And then you get the results back. Girl, that's not your type. I'm going to walk a shame. Like, okay, I have some yeah. work I need to do. So once you get that information, how mm-hmm. are we using that in a practical way to step into that next best most confident version of ourselves weekly or daily? Yeah. Let me give you an example that just happened this morning. I had a one, I give all my one-on-one clients the Enneagram when they work with me one-on-one because it just helps us accelerate our results. So I actually had a one-on-one call this morning with a Enneagram two. She is feeling so overwhelmed at work. I mean, she is on burnout overload. She's like, Kelly, I've worked till 9 PM every day this week. And so we go back and we revisit the Enneagram because we can start asking ourselves, well, why are you working that long? And of course I'm I'm coaching her through the conversation, but when it really comes down to it, it's because as a type two, she wants to feel needed. She wants to feel loved. And so what's happening is, is she wants to avoid as a two, um, not being needed. And so when people ask her for help, she loves to be needed. And so she says, yes, very unconsciously, right? All this is so unconscious. And so in our coaching sessions, when we can like bring this back up to the surface and saying, are all of your yeses something truly for you to own? Is this yours to own? Or are you saying yes? Because somewhere in there, the ego just loves to feel liked and needed, right? There's um, for a two, they, they say the bad habit, each, each type has a vice or a bad habit for a two, it's pride. It's the, it's the thought that they can do and be all the things to all the people. And so that just provides us a tremendous path of self-awareness to say, stop. Let's talk about why you're saying yes all the time. Let's question some of those beliefs and start to ask yourself, is this mine to own? And what's a better way that we can move forward? What would you look like at work if you were showing up more like a healthy four, which is the growth number for a two. And so she can start to see herself in those moments responding a little bit differently so that she can have more work-life balance. And that's the power of the Enneagram is saying, oh, I'm just unconsciously saying yes, because I love to be needed. And when I can stop and take a deep breath and go, why am I doing this? That's when you can make a change. So So it sounds like, Interestingly enough, you can really get an understanding of the ways that you may self-sabotage. 100%. Right? And sometimes we don't normally think about it this way, but saying yes all the time is a form of (laughs) self-sabotage. In her case, that's what it sounds like to me. And I also know that you uh, have have coined this a series of questions that we can ask ourselves to stop self-sabotaging our Mm -hmm. career growth. So can you share some, some tea with us about the questions that we should ask ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I like to have women ask five questions as like a career alignment check to make sure that one, they're in the right career. And I would add a sixth based on the conversations we just had situationally here today. But the first one is like, is this company or is what I'm about to do in alignment with my values? Because if it's not, I like how you use the word self-sabotage, right? There's probably a little bit of unconscious self-sabotage there. Why am I staying and doing something that's not even in alignment with my values? Number two, does the this give me the ability, this role, this job, this project to use my unique skills and talents? Because if it's not, why would you stay? Lots of times you, you start to get exposed into all the other reasons why you stay. Money, 
title with her. We talked a lot about obligation. Like, I feel like sometimes I stay here because I just feel obligated. They pay me well. And so there's like an obligation there. Okay. Question number three is what's your energy level at the close of most business days? Like when you leave work every day, are you kind of like on most days, are you kind of that good, happy, tired, where maybe you had some challenging projects, but you're like, you know, that, that felt good. Cause I'm using what I'm meant to use. Or do you leave your, your office every day? Like, oh my God, I, I can't do it. I have no more energy for my family and myself and my hobbies. The next question is, is the work that you're doing in alignment with where you want to take your career? Like, is it in alignment with your career purpose, right? And your ultimate career goals. Because if you start asking yourselves those questions and you're getting more no's than you are yeses, it could be a really good opportunity to stop and ask yourself like, and this is where I was at after I was in a job for 12 years. It was a great paying job. I was working for one of the most well-respected companies in my town. Um, I was paid well. I mean, I was on the company's commercials. All the boxes were checked, but I couldn't say yes to any of those things I just described to you. I was working against my values. I wasn't using my skills and talents every day. My energy was shot. And so as you can imagine, that self-sabotage in itself, I didn't have any energy when I got home for my family, myself, my hobbies. And so when I really got honest with myself about what really matters, like I had to find a new career that was more in alignment with those. And I actually took a little bit of a pay cut, but I will tell you, I was never happier in my entire life. And because I was so freaking happy and geeking out every day at work, I actually got a pay raise six months after I joined. And then I was making more money than when I left. And so it's just one of those things where it's like, you talk about self-sabotage is there's just little ways and questions we can ask ourselves to say, one, am I climbing the right ladder? But number two, is that ladder even against the right building? Mm. Yeah. That's that really is, cool. listen, that's a mic drop. Uh, mm. I, one, of, one of the things that I always say is I spent 10 years climbing the corporate ladder of success only to realize my ladder was placed on the wrong building. Yeah. And I also love, in terms of your questions, the fact that the theme is the answers are always within. Mm, totally. Yeah. 100%. Right? All those questions. trusting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we spend so much time, particularly when we feel as though we we're lacking confidence at the moment. We think the answers are outside of ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. from family, friends, society, you know, whomever. But with those questions, what I love about them is it speaks volumes to sometimes you just have to get still. Yeah. And find the answer within even that question that you asked around your energy level on most days is very, very powerful because no one else can answer that, but you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we start to pull too many people, like we're delegating out our confidence, right. let's stop delegating out our confidence to other people's opinions, what other people will think when you start to own those things about yourself and you start to get truthful that maybe you need to make some different changes, people will be upset with you people who maybe took advantage of your generosity, people who just were benefiting from you showing up and hustling and doing all the things. And so when you start to make those changes, like I have career changes, relationship changes, people will get mad. And I think I used to just try to make everybody happy and, oh, don't be mad at me. But um, a coach gave me this card once and I keep it by my desk and it just says, let them be mad. And I just have to remember sometimes that other people's emotional responses are for them to deal with. It's not for me to deal with. If I'm showing up and I'm acting in alignment with my values and I'm making the decisions that are right for me and I'm being direct and kind, some people may get upset, 
And that's okay. I can let them be mad and work through their feelings and I don't need to appease or save or rescue. So I love that because success is whatever you define it to be. Mm -hmm. But a part of that process is people are going to be mad. (laughs) You're going to disappoint people. Success doesn't always feel good because it does come with moving past the discomfort of speaking up or advocating for yourself and saying no. So I love that that was given to you. I I need it on a shirt. Let them be mad. Show up anyway. Um, Glennon Doyle writes in her book, Untamed, she said, you know, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but you'll get the gist because you just said it better to disappoint other people than to constantly disappoint yourself. And that's hard. It's very true. And I love that book, by the (laughs) way, I even purchased the uh, companion journal. Oh, I need to get that. Yes. It was in TJ Maxx. I was so shocked to see it. I bought one for me and I bought one for my friend. Yeah, yeah. But I I love that book because I do feel there's a point in our lives that we, I had someone on my podcast the other day and we talked about unbecoming that when you think about stepping into that next best version of yourself, it really is more so about getting untamed, unbecoming before you can become. Mm -hmm. And when we think about success, a, a huge part of that journey is unbecoming disappointing some people. So thank you for sharing that. Let them be mad. That needs to be on a sticky note for now. I'm going to make it happen to my desk. So if there was one rule that everyone in the entire world needed to follow, what would that rule be? Mm. Be kind to yourself first. Mm. I think if we were all a little kinder to ourselves, we'd be kinder to everyone else. I don't think I I'm speaking for myself. I'm not very good with the self-compassion thing, but I always find when I'm a little bit more compassionate with myself, mm-hmm. I can be a little bit more compassionate with everyone else. And I think we need that right now. Mm, I like that. It's almost like that. The typical advice that people say, or they give the example of if you're on a plane, you know, take care of yourself first before yeah. you can take care of your kids. But you're right. When you're kind to yourself first, it's like a domino effect. Mm-hmm. It, it also spreads out to others. So because I know that you have committed your life to pouring into other people, how do you take care of yourself? How do you continue to uh, pour into you as you're pouring into others? Because it's a hard <laughs> job, right? Yeah. You're bringing up something really important because I know a lot of women, especially I was talking about with my client who are burnt out because they spend so much time caring for everyone else, mm-hmm. but not themselves. I had to set some non-negotiables for myself about, I think when my daughter was three and I just, I was depressed. Like I was just overworked. I was just honestly, like I couldn't even stand myself at that point. Like I just didn't feel like I was fit for human consumption. Cause I just felt grumpy and short all the time. And I was like, now I have this little person and I'm not feeling good. So I have some non-negotiables that I live by right now in terms of self-care. One is I get up about 20 to 30 minutes before everyone else, because I have to have that time of just quiet. I'm an introvert. I have to have my quiet time to just journal, read a devotional, whatever that is, or like a book that kind of gets me thinking just because if I don't have quiet time to myself in the morning, like I literally am not fit for human consumption. And then I work out every morning. I move my body. Like I'm the type of person that like, I just, I have to move my body in some way every day. Otherwise I feel, and this is a big Enneagram thing too. I'm what they call a head type in the Enneagram. So 
fives, sixes, and sevens are head types, eight, nines, and ones are body types, twos, threes, and fours are heart types. Like I will get in my head and ruminate and be all lost up in there if I literally do not move my body. So like non-negotiable for me, getting up before people, moving my body every day. I personally love lifting weights and going on walks. It makes me, makes me feel good. Everybody has their different thing and that's, that's fine. And then my other non-negotiable for me is I do not work past 5 p.m. I don't take meetings after 5 p.m. I don't take meetings on the weekends. I used to travel for work like 50% of the time. Uh, No more, no more, no more late night meetings, no more being gone. Like at 5 p.m. and on, like I close my door and I go spend time with my family and I'm in bed by nine. I'm one of those people. Don't even think about calling me maybe after eight because things are starting to slow down a little bit. So that's what I do. So it's so funny, Kelly, I'm sitting here saying, Kelly is in my head. I'm in the bed nine. I have my me time. My meditation is me time in the morning. And for me, I'm like you, I'm very much in my head. Sometimes I wake up and then the worry starts and the fears and all the things. And so I need that time to meditate and really get in tuned Mm-hmm. with caring for Candia before Candia has to care for others. And I wasn't always like that, but it has helped me tremendously. So I'm so happy to hear that uh, you've adopted several practices for yourself. Now, how old is your daughter now? Now she is almost 17. So she's older now, which means I have the benefits of a little more independence. So I know there's a lot of moms out there And caregivers just in general who may have higher demand clients, whether you're taking care of your parents or you're taking care of little people. So I'm kind of in that sweet spot of she's got a job, she's got school. And so that it does afford me more time, (laughs) which is nice, but I had to be very diligent about those routines when she was little, because y'all know if you've got littles, like that scope creep can happen real fast. Right. Now I'm, I'm, I'm curious though, you have a 17 year old daughter. When you look at how you were raised and the things that you were taught about confidence, what are some of the things that you may have taught her that's different than how you were taught when it comes to confidence? Because I feel like we're in a whole new season that I'm loving with women in confidence mm-hmm. versus yeah. when you know we were younger. And so I'm always curious to hear how moms are, are teaching their, their children, boys or girls, a different perspective about confidence. Yeah. You know, I teach her a few things differently. I don't remember my mom ever talking about confidence. I remember my mom worked. She was very successful at what she did. And so that just watching that was good. But I also remember like, I grew up in the eighties. Like I grew up in the Dexatrim and slim fast era. Okay. So like <laughs> a lot of my mom's messages to me, like, again, this is my mom's great, but just era of the times were about my weight. I was a little, I was a little chunky growing up, but I remember like the unwritten message was, is you need to look a certain way because that's all about happiness and success and like presenting a good image, right? That's what she was thinking of. One of the things I do differently from my daughter is we don't weigh ourselves. We don't talk about our bodies. We don't judge other people's bodies. The one thing I would say I'm consciously doing different is accepting her for who she is. We don't talk about appropriate sizes of clothing. We talk about making your body healthy and your body is healthy when you tend to choose more foods that aren't out of a package. She's a teenager. So if anybody's been around teenagers, you know that they hate protein and enjoy eating things from packages. So we have like 
conversations about let's not eat things as many things from packages, right? Um, and we don't judge our bodies. We don't judge other people's bodies. It's all about how do you feel? What's your energy level? Do you feel good, right? Do you have enough energy to do the things you need to do? And just really changing that narrative and not even using the word diet. Like, no, because I think a lot of just self-confidence issues start with how we feel about our bodies. Right. I, I trashed the word diet uh, very long. I will say mindful eating. That's what I mm-hmm. believe yeah. in. Being very mindful. I believe that foods not only uh, can impact how you feel, but how you think as well. And so I love the fact that you ask her about how she's feeling because I do believe that instills a sense of confidence in saying, if you feel good about it, yeah. what everyone else thinks. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Relating this back to landing the plane on confidence is, yeah, is do you feel good? Are you asking for the things that you need? I tell her all the time. And how are you asking for what you need? She's got a job now. So she gets a little career coaching from me or like when she's struggling in school, I'm like, how are you asking for what you need? Right. Cause that's confidence, right? Confidence sometimes isn't always a feeling it's an action. And you talked about this. I remember with Sanika, but like how are you actually taking the actions of confidence, speaking up for yourself, noticing your energy, asking for help, using your voice. It's, it's those little things, right. Versus just letting her just kind of sit and be stressed out. Right. Well, Miss Kelly, how, how can we continue to support you and your work? Oh, thank you so much. You can follow me on Instagram at Kelly Ray Thompson. I'm Kelly with an I and Ray with an E. I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. Also at LinkedIn forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson. And then if you want to learn more about my book, just go to closingtheconfidencegap.com forward slash book. And it's all Yay. there. So, and I have to just tell y'all, listen, Kelly's Instagram is popping. Okay. Oh. So if you want insight, action, and some energy, Make sure you connect with her on Instagram as well as LinkedIn, because I'm always a fan of people who don't only give you the mindset shifts, but also the action. And so I want to give you your flowers for that today. And thank you for being committed to what you do. Okay, party people, y'all know what to do. If this episode resonated with you in any way, share it with your people so they can share it with their people. Thank you all so much. I will talk to you next week.